I think one thing we're starting to observe is a reluctance and even some recommendations to never release a V1 module. Many folks are now only releasing V0 and their continuity bump versions there because they don't want to run into the risk of needing to make a small change that is a breaking change per semver. They want to denote that via semantic versioning and then go through all of this hassle. A one line change might require a consumer to update 30 files if they import that package across 30 files, even if only one file needs to be changed. And so the cost of migrating that code base to the new version is not linear to the actual change itself. There's a heavier burden often on the consumers to adopt that new version that doesn't reflect on what that breaking change really was in the system. And so because of that, folks are saying, hey, you know what? To avoid that aspect, that risk, that user experience problem, I'm just never going to release V1. Big thanks to our partners, Linode Fastly and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com and get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Cockroach Labs, the makers of CockroachDB, the most highly evolved database on the planet. With CockroachDB, you can scale fast, survive anything, and thrive everywhere. It's open source, Postgres wire compatible, and Kubernetes friendly, which means you can launch and run it anywhere. For those who need more, you can build and scale fast with Cockroach Cloud, which is CockroachDB hosted as a service. It's the simplest way to deploy CockroachDB and is available instantly on AWS and Google Cloud. With Cockroach Cloud, a team of world-class SREs maintains and manages your database infrastructure so you can focus less on ops and more on code. Get started for free with a 30-day free trial or try their new forever free tier that's super generous. Head to cockroachlabs.com slash changelog to learn more. Again, cockroachlabs.com slash changelog. Let's do it. It's go time. Welcome to go time. Your source for diverse discussions from around the go community. We record live each and every Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern. Subscribe now at youtube.com slash changelog so you're notified of when we go live. And don't forget to hop into the Gophers Slack and the GoTime FM channel. That's where all the chatter happens. If this is your first time listening, subscribe now at gotime.fm. Hey, let's get right into it, shall we? Here we go. Welcome to Go Time. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Civ and the V2 issue. And today I am joined by Tim Heckman, a gopher moonlighting as an SRE at Netflix. Tim, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? I'm doing well. I'm also joined by Peter Bourjon, a Go programmer, opinion haver, and graybeard becomer. Peter, how are you doing? I'm great. And just so everyone knows, I'm going to say a cuss later, so get ready for that. So I guess this one will not be a family-friendly episode. Absolutely not. We're also joined by Chris. How are you, Chris? Doing all right. It's been a while since we've been on an episode together, I think. Yeah, it's been like at least a month. All right. So really what I want to get into today is I think a lot of us in the Go community have heard about the V2 Plus problem, and you've sort of heard complaints about semantic import versioning, and we've heard a little bit about what it is, but... A lot of us who haven't fully switched over to Go modules or like who work on smaller projects or whatever it happens to be might not be quite as familiar with what all those issues are, or they might not be affecting us quite as much. So we might not be as in tune with, you know, what other people are suffering from. So more than anything, I just wanted to sort of talk with you guys and find out, you know, what those problems are, how different developers are experiencing them, and just get a better understanding of those pain points so that, you know, we have a 
better understanding of how different people are using the Go tooling and how it works or doesn't work for them. So I guess to start off with, we should probably start with some background. Does anybody want to explain what semantic import versioning is? Peter's got the noses, so I guess I can jump in on that one real quick. And so semantic import versioning is a way to uh, denote the major version of a module in its import path. Uh, one of the major goals of that is to support multi or multiple major versions in a project, generally to assist with the transition. So you have a dependency that has done a major version bump, you have some code that depends on it, and need to roam and ride between those two versions for a period of time while you do the transition. Semantic import versioning was meant to be a way to provide a mechanism to denote those two separate versions so you could use them simultaneously in a single project. I have a quick question before we get into the details there. You use this phrase for roam and ride? And you're the only person I've ever heard use this in my entire life. And it's fine and it's good, but like, what is that? The way it's been described to me, the way I've, I've heard it is, you think of two Roman chariots riding next to each other. And you have a person who has one foot on one, one foot on the other, and is riding two basically chariots at a single time. Yeah, there's two horses, two chariots, one person. So it's a Jean-Claude Van Damme maneuver, basically. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Okay. That's obscure. I'm into it. I'm going to bring it into my <laughs> vocabulary. But yeah, where does that come from, Nino? I have no idea. I've heard it for a few years. People I work with have said it probably for the last 10 years of my career. So I, I don't, I'm just surrounded by weirdos, I guess. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's fine. It's a Netflix thing. That's cool. Um, maybe, maybe. But I, think I heard it before that. So I don't want to attribute just to them. I mean, once Peter puts it into his vocabulary, all of his peers are going to be saying it too. So yeah. Well, and I contextualize most things in terms of the muscles from Brussels. So that makes sense to me. I don't know about you. Maybe that's something else for you. But yeah, just to summarize again, it's a way to support those multiple major versions in a single source file. Otherwise, you'd have those imports you know, conflicting at the top, being able to define which version you're using where. Uh, so they made the version part of the name itself, which is a little unique compared to other languages where it's not common that the identity of a dependency is, is directly related to its version. Can I add some color here? Oh, go for it. Am I allowed? Is this okay? So like semantic import version, it's this like big name and concept. I think what it does, like everyone knows Semver, right? Semantic versioning, right? Where we have these like three numbers that are separated by periods and each number denotes a certain semantic <laughs> increasing or decreasing like uh, impact on the code that it like is tagged to. And like what semantic import versioning SIV does is like basically modify or like elevate the importance of the major version in a specific way. And it says like, the major version is so like sacrosanct that we're going to like lift it out of the versioning space, which as Tim, you say, is kind of like the, what are the two dimensions? Like identity and time, I guess. Yeah. I would say that's probably a way to describe that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So like time version is like one axis and then identity, like the name of the module is another one. What semantic import versioning does is say the major version this like in semantic is like API compatibility is so important. They're going to take it out of the time dimension of the time axis. And we're going to move it to the identity axis so that this same quote unquote module with two different major versions is not the same module. It is two different modules. And this like concept is then expressed and like assumed through the entire stack. Right. And I guess everyone kind of understands this at some level, but it's a big change. Actually, it's like a big change from what is there any other package management system or ecosystem that does this by mandate, by fiat? I don't so know. There's none that I'm aware of. But I don't know that I've run into one personally. Yeah. That's my view on what it is. So to make sure that everybody listening understands, this is the big reason why 
when you're looking at imports and in the past you would never have like a slash v2 at the end of anything but now when you're looking and you're running in go modules it's not uncommon to see a slash v then some number at the end of a package import which is something that previously would not have ever been there well i mean i guess it technically could have but unless you were using go package in we'll, we'll force you to do okay. this Gustavo Neumeyer, again, the Nostradamus of the Go ecosystem, predicting the future. Yes, well done. So when we're looking at these, you know, the semantic import versioning and how the Go mod tool works, what makes like V0 or V1 special in comparison to the rest of the versions? Like, why is it called the V2 plus problem rather than, you know, something else? I think this comes down to what is maybe a fundamental assertion about the life cycle of software. And I think there were some that have the belief that there should only ever be one major version and you should, you know, you should get your API right the first time. And it should be very, very exceptional that you will ever need to release a new major version going forward. And so I think a side effect of that belief was that the V0, V1 versions were omitted from the name itself to make it easy. We expect you to only ever have to get to V1. V0 is your development phase. V1 is when you hit stable. And so to make it harder in some ways to release new major versions, they, they added this as a requirement to the later versions. You had to add this extra you know, label to the name. Your consumers had to add it to all of their files. It was sort of a, a barrier to make it more challenging to introduce breaking changes and then to signal those breaking changes via semantic versioning. So when you say that they added it to make it harder, was it added specifically for that reason or was that a side effect of some other goals that they had? I mean, I think in some ways it's a side effect, right? But I think it's also, there's been folks who've explicitly communicated their desire is to not have it be very easy to make breaking changes, right? To add some hurdles for folks to overcome to get to that point because it will impact their consumers. I think, it, you know, there was the idea of, hey, if everything is going to be V0, V1, why make everyone include that in their, in their string? It's sort of redundant. But I think that creates some cognitive burdens on folks to know, Am I getting V0? Am I getting V1? You know, if I need to roam and ride in between those two versions, it isn't as clear where in other versions you see that being promoted. And so in some ways, it, it might be better if that was consistently used across the board than having these special cases where V0, V1 are special, and V2 then beyond requires that explicit demarcation in the name. Yeah, I think we'll get to that point specifically when we talk about a little later in the chat here. But yeah, I totally agree. And maybe I could generalize a little bit, like Tim, as you say, like that the authors kind of believe that it should be or is very rare that you release a V2, like kind of something like this, right? Because there's this presumption that you're going to work really hard and get everything perfect on V1, right? Like that's kind of like, I'm not sure they, they like expect you. No, they expect you to do that basically. And like even more that, that like every major version represents a uh, commitment by you, the module author, that you're going to support this thing, that this is like, that you have, first of all, enormous number of consumers for whom changing from a major version to a different one is like just intractably difficult. And that therefore you treat the major version as sacrosanct, right? This is an assumption that's kind of baked into modules. And that's one aspect I agree, but I'm not totally sure that like, they want it to be harder. I agree that like some people express that statement, but definitely modules is a, let's say normative. Modules is telling you how you should do stuff. Like they know what's right and they're making a claim like most people are doing it wrong. And so you need to do it this way. You know, Go itself kind of does that a lot too, but there's an important difference there, I think. 
Yeah, maybe a better way to say it is they're reluctant to make it easy. There's a reluctancy to have there be a low barrier to make those changes and to move your software or your module forward in that way. That's right. So semantic Semver, if you go to semver.org and you read what the major version is, like like the definition of the major version is kind of roughly two things. It is an expression of API compatibility, right? If you break API compatibility, you have to bump major version. Okay, clear. And also it's like a sort of, they don't define the word stability, but it is a commitment to stability. So like once you get to V1, you are committing to stability. You're like stable. And what GoModules does is say, okay, that's good. And stable means these specific things. And their definition of stability is like extremely strict. I don't think they would disagree with that. And like, I don't know, I don't want to like skip to the end of the discussion here, but like stability is not an objective thing. It's not well-defined. It is dependent on many functions that are different from ecosystem, ecosystem, repo to repo, project to project. And so this is part of one of the kind of like many errors that modules commits, I think. Assumptions they make which aren't universally true. I think there's also a dimension here of what it means when you don't have a like V2 on the end, because it doesn't necessarily mean version zero or version one, because if you were using DEP or something before where you had versions, it will take the last version that was pre-module. So it could be version 17 or version 34 or version, you know, who knows, something else with that plus incompatible at the end. So I feel like part of it, too, is like the historical aspect. And I think in that respect, it might have made more sense if they had said V0, V1 on the end so that it's all modules have this identifying aspect to them. And if you don't have it, that's the old system. That feels like it probably would have been a cleaner break. I can understand why you might not want to do that. Having to add those labels for modules does increase the amount of effort you have to put in for those V0 and V1 initial usages, but it does seem to me that it probably would have been a little bit cleaner at the end of the day if we had had to specify V0 and V1 for modules and kind of made it like a a new system that kind of changed the import path for real. That would have been so nice. Oh, man. Yeah, like a a major blunder is is the presumption that without a V suffix, it is V0 or V1, right? This assumption has like had so many ripple effects and it's like, oh, the like quasi-proposal to deprecate or make SIV optional removes this assumption. Definitely. Yeah. As I call it, one of the side effects is we've seen this a few times where folks will try to adopt something that has picked up modules and they get surprised by what their package is pulling in, right? Because they didn't have the sieve in the name. They're getting weird, maybe compilation errors, depending on what changed between the versions. And so it may not be immediately clear what the problem they ran into was and take some time to walk through. Oh, yes. And especially because maybe folks that are newer to the language and are following some readme. Oh, yes, this is how Go works. We provide the name in this way. It can be a bit of a surprising first experience if that's what they see when they come in. And so I think that's the other angle is that jarring nature of it compared to their languages where the lack of consistency makes it for newer folks to not be sure what to expect until they understand all these peculiarities of how the system works itself. I can definitely say that when I first started using modules, one of the more confusing things was that Go get and then like just some GitHub repo, you know, like the URL to it didn't always get the version that I expected at first. And it was kind of like you kind of figure it out over time and it becomes something you work with. But it was definitely jarring the first time where I was just like, why do I have this version of this rather than like what is currently the latest version, which is what I kind of expected. And I think with a lot of other packaging tools, that's kind of what it's trained me to think is like when I install a new dependency, it gives me the latest version. And that wasn't explicitly what was happening here unless I told it like I need the latest version. 
Right, exactly. And this is like human intuition. It's not just your like intuition as a programmer, but like when I say John, hey, John, you're not a different John when you're 32 as you are when you're 14, right? You're just the same John, right? And so I don't have to say John 14 to refer to you in, it, you know, like in that year. In the same way, when I say like Serps and Logarus, right? If I say Serps and Logarus, I am explicitly not specifying a version. And like it's undefined. And like when that's true, by default, I want the latest version, the latest major version, right? Like kind of everyone knows that. But in modules, that's not what's true. Well, it is if you've never released a V2. If you only have V1, then that's what you get. But once you get past that point, it, it becomes almost like a, a user support burden for the module author because they need to make sure they communicate that clearly and document it. And they may get questions about that when those folks run into those challenges. And so, yeah, it has that an interesting burden, folks, both who are consumers and those that are publishers. I know for me, like if I'm grabbing a package because of that, like, I feel like the first thing I have to do with any package is go to the actual GitHub page and look for the readme where it says like, this is the go get command to install this, which to me is a little bit frustrating sometimes, but like, I will, I will definitely say as a consumer of libraries, like if that was the worst thing that happened with go modules, I'd be like, okay, I can deal with that. Like that's not the end of the world, but it sounds like there's other things that are sort of at play do. So if you wanted to expand on that, are there other aspects of it that are like byproducts of the fact that it works the way it does? I think maybe segueing nicely when I just said about that burden on the, the consumer and the producer, I think one thing we're starting to observe is, is a reluctance and even some recommendations to never release a V1 module. And to many folks are now only releasing V0 and their continuity bump versions there because they don't want to run into the risk of needing to make a small change that is a breaking change per semver. They want to denote that via semantic versioning and then go through all this hassle. You know, a one line change might require a consumer to update 30 files if they import that package across 30 files, even if only one file needs to be changed. And so the cost of migrating that code base to the new version is not linear to the actual change itself. There's a heavier burden often on the consumers to adopt that new version that doesn't reflect on what that breaking change really was in the system. And so because of that, folks are saying, hey, you know what, to avoid that aspect, that risk, that user experience problem, I'm just never going to release V1. I'm just going to keep it on V0 and continue bumping that version because I will never run into that user experience problem. It, the cost of upgrading will be linear to the, the change itself, but that itself has other knock-on effects. 100%. And like, this is such an obvious, let's say, like effect of the decision of modules to make, to assume that, that like a major version bump is such a severe thing, right? They assume they're so rare. And furthermore, that like, uh, that every module is backed by a team of people who are like, fully committed to keeping it fresh and like up to date and maintained, blah, blah, blah. So like when those conditions aren't true, right? When a module is written by one guy in his spare time or whatever, and they can't commit to keeping the API stable and maintaining, you know, API stability with all the CVEs they need to support or whatever, and they need to bump, they need to break API compatibility and they need to bump um, uh, the major version frequently. And modules makes that so burdensome. There's so much toil, both for the author and for the consumer that yes, like, I think I've actually decided that it is like incorrect. It is like unsustainable for anyone who authors a module who isn't a team of people paid to maintain that module to use any major version except zero because the costs of doing so, you can't pay those costs as an individual, as a single person in an open source environment. Like it doesn't work out. And I'm certainly like, I just broke out the log package from GoKit to its own repo, which was like long overdue, but that will always be major version zero because I and my like open source contributors cannot commit 
to the expectations of stability that Go modules expects. And, and like, yeah, Tim, as you say, like many people are doing this. And I think it's actually the like correct thing to do. I feel like on some level that part of this problem might also be caused by Semver itself. Because at the end of the day, we're just trying to communicate, you know, the semantics of, of what our code is doing. We kind of have to define what like breaking changes actually mean. You can go to like some extremes and say anything that is not additive is in some way a breaking change, so that everything you release should be a major version. And you know, there's even there's, some additive things are breaking changes, actually. Yeah, and there's a lot of legitimacy to that. And I think part of the issue that I've sort of had with, you know, adding the version into the name is that it kind of gives an extra amount of credence to to Semper of saying like this is the correct way to talk about your API to talk about your library that you're building. I think that that's probably not what we really should have done as a community and I think that will inevitably just push us to essentially not use the major part of Semver, as you're suggesting, Peter, and just have basically a major and a minor version instead of having major minor patch or having a major and a patch version. So in effect, what we've done is we've kind of taken away a common understanding of what that major version number means to people, and we've put it elsewhere, which I don't think is particularly good for the long term of our community. I understand wanting to go with something like Semver because I think it is, you know, widely standard, but I think this is also the conversation we as a community and we as an industry need to have around semantics because they are hard. And in some of the conversations yeah. that have come up around this too, I think that there have been arguments of like, well, our tooling should be more nuanced. We should have ways of deprecating specific parts and pieces of our API. Like this function is insecure, or this method or this type is insecure. Please don't use it, which I understand. That's hard. And I really love the idea of that. But the main question I have around that is that tooling doesn't exist now. We can't say that we should be using this tooling that doesn't exist and that should be how we resolve problems that people are facing right now. Yeah. So I hope that in the future we do develop this tooling, but I don't think it's a very strong argument for the type of situation that we're in right now. And I, I would also say that one of the things that annoys me, that I think is probably a tooling thing we can fix about semantic import versions, is, and maybe it already has been fixed, maybe this is a little outdated knowledge, but when I go to like use Go imports to automatically pull in a version, sometimes it'll just pull in the, the base level. It won't pull in V5, even if I yeah, used course, V5 in that file already. It's like, oh no, you didn't mean V5. So I've had to do a lot more manual typing of imports or correcting of imports to get the desired result that I want. And I think that's like one of those like small annoyances that doesn't get talked about a lot, but is one of those things that just makes it more inconvenient to write Go, which just like frustrates me a bit because one of the really nice things about Go is like, I don't have to write import pass. I don't have to do a lot of things because it just can intuit a lot. So I think that's a little bit of a loss for us. You touched on so many like super interesting things there. And I want to talk about two of them if I can. I've talked too much. I'm going to stop talking after this. I've like dominated the conversation here. Sorry about this. So Semver does precisely define the major version, right? If, if you break API compatibility, now it doesn't say what API compatibility is, right? Because that's kind of like squishy. But if you break API compatibility, whatever that is, you have to bump Sem the major version, right? So that's precisely defined. The problem is like, hold on one second. Sorry, I have to figure out uh, what did the Twitter poll say? Which cuss word I should say? Because I'm going to say it right now. Hold on. Uh, God, Twitter, Twitter, Twitter. Uh, I think it was Richard. So whatever the Richard definition of Semver is, like people mess it up, right? It's an ideal and it's like useful, but it's not perfect, right? And the problem is like modules assumes it's perfect. Modules assumes that 
when there's a different major version, like when you break API compatibility, which you should never do, that you'll bump the major version, right? And therefore, it provides no affordances for you to deal with the inevitable situation when that's not true. It assumes that everything is perfect in that sense. And that if a module isn't perfect in that way, well, you should like file a PR, <laughs> not use that module or whatever, right? And so that's like one of many disconnects between the assumptions of, I think, the authors and maintainers and like the real world, for lack of a better word, right? There's very few affordances for the things, the real world workflows in, in modules. And that's like a core thing. You said another more practical thing at the end, which I'm now blanking on. Oh, having your import pass automatically come in with the right version. Right. Right. So when you type syrups and logarus, what you mean when you say that is the most recent version of syrups and logarus generally. But what Go modules assumes is like v0 or v1 of syrups and logarus, right? I and uh, Andrew Durand and God, someone else's name I'm blanking on, I'm totally embarrassed by, filed a proposal to improve this situation, which was rejected by the module authors, actually, because they don't believe that that's true. They don't believe that when you write Serps and Logarus, you mean the most recent version. I feel like, too, not necessarily even that I mean the latest version, but most of the time it's like, if I am using a module that has multiple packages, I mean, if I import a new package, use the same version of the module that that first package I imported it from. I ran into this a while ago and was just like, I think I'd accidentally go gotten multiple versions of the module somehow, and it just couldn't figure out which one I meant. Or oh. when I was just kind of <laughs> intuiting from the modules that I had, it was just like, I know you imported like three other packages from this module with V5, but like, oh, you have another package you're importing. Clearly you meant V1 or V0 on, on this This one. is great. So in the Roman writing metaphor, you have seven feet and you're on seven different versions of the same package accidentally. And when you type like Serpson dot, you know, like, like log field, yeah, just pick one randomly. That's the one you meant, right? This is, this is great. This is fun. I've never heard this one before. What's up, Gophers? This episode is brought to you by friends at Teleport. With Teleport Access Plane, you can quickly access any computing resource anywhere. Engineers and security teams can unify access to SSH servers, Kubernetes clusters, web applications, and databases across all environments. Teleport is open core, which you can use for free, and it's supported by their cloud-hosted version, which lets you forget about configuring, updating, or managing Teleport. The Teleport team does all that for you. Your team can focus on your projects and spend less time worrying about infrastructure access. Try Teleport today in the cloud, self-hosted, or open source. Head to GoTeleport.com to learn more and get started. Again, GoTeleport.com. I think Chris called out something good, though, about that whole deprecation idea, though, where I don't know if that works for everybody, especially in security-focused fixes, right, where the security team might want to look at the versions that things depend on and go, you know, we know these are not vulnerable because you cannot use that vulnerable code. Where if we maintain a version that is just deprecating the method or the code path that has that vulnerability, there really isn't a protection or a way to say for certain whether or not they've avoided that without doing you know, static analysis across all of those applications that consume it. Which kind of goes back into, you know, an earlier point Peter made, which is the support that those modules have, right? And those things that you're consuming, 
do you have the capacity and capability to run rich static analysis across all things you're doing to make sure you're not using you know, a deprecated method or something versus just going, I don't have that vulnerable version. I know I'm not you know, in that camp of being at risk. And so I think it does add just more cognitive overhead on the individuals to know, am I safe? Am I doing the right thing? Even if the tooling was providing more support, it doesn't necessarily stop the human. It might provide a warning or something, but it doesn't go, hey, no, wait a minute, you are using something that's insecure. You probably don't want to do that. Which I think is some might push back on that, right? I think there are some that are okay with the deprecation method if it is, you know, right in front of you pops up with something flashing in your face going, hang on, there might be something wrong here. But the other, I think, is, is around the hostility to people that don't use Semver. There are some companies, groups that use a calendar-based released versioning system, right? Year, month, day, or patch number or something. And, you know, because they are choosing to do that version scheme, if the tooling didn't assume Civ, right, and didn't require that as part of the name, I think it'd be easier for those folks where consumers could rely on the Go mod to specify the version. They wouldn't have to update, you know, dozens of files to the new month, right, as they're upgrading all their code. And so I think there are those exceptional use cases where people do choose their own versioning scheme that looks like Semver in some ways, and then causes these conflicts where they, they run into having to put the, the year or whatever in, in the version or whatever it may be every time they bump the year. Uh, I don't know. If you don't, if you don't pick up something like Semver, it, like, it distills down to the base case there is like commit hash, right? I don't think you can build a package management system around commit hashes, really. I don't know. <laughs> like, it, I'm not sure how much it'll be able to do for you. Only if you're pinning, right? If your whole thing is, hey, I want to use this version that I've tested against. This is another topic of discussion. Yeah, I yeah. only want to pin to this specific version, and that's the one I use because that's how they version their software. That's yeah. the one use case I could think of, right? That's different than the, I trust these things to be compatible and yeah. usable by me. Hey, can I poll the saying... four people in this room real fast? Can I, can I do a poll? <laughs> is that okay? If you'd like to, but you're one of the four people, so. <laughs> the three other people in this poll. room? I want to do a straw poll that's like N equals three. We all program, right? Probably we all program. Yes. That's how we, okay. So like, have you ever had a situation where like the incompatibilities in dependency constraints have like produced an unsolvable debt graph? Do you kind of know what that means? Like, like, is that like, it's not possible to produce a compilation unit that satisfies all the constraints. Has that ever happened to you? I don't think that's ever happened to me. I have not run into that before. Uh, Tim, I bet you'll say yes. I've definitely had weird things where like the version that it decides that I need to be using, you can't find anywhere or something. Right. I forget what that was related to, but like I've never had like, oh, it's it, it's impossible to resolve this graph. I've only probably hit it once or twice in the dev days when somebody did some weird ranging that I was, confl- you know, three different ranges that are conflicting and we can't solve something. But it, it's exceptionally rare that I run into that. Right. And like when that happens... Was it like a uh, uh, like a, like a like a crisis? For you? Like you could figure out a way to fix it, right? You have to like talk to some other team, right, and say like, "Hey, don't do this. Change this to this," and then they do it, and then it's solved, right? Like that's kind of my experience as well. That or you you know you you do a local fork and push a PR upstream and use your fork what with the new dependency or maybe right? Like I've definitely used that as a mechanism to get towards that path where I can resolve. Yeah. Right. Right. So if you look at the like rationale documents, I think in the Vigo papers or something, Russ like describes some scenario where, you know, like he came up with it. Alice and Bob work at whatever company and Alice goes on vacation and blah, blah. And he like creates a scenario where there is produced an unsolvable depth graph. And this scenario where there's an unsolvable depth graph is taken to be both like a critical problem and common, right? And like this assumption is one of a few that like are at the foundational level of Go models design, right? that this thing needs to be solved by the package management system. And that, and 
going back all the way to the beginning, the need to roam and ride between two versions of a dependency in a compilation unit as part of an upgrade or whatever. Like, I understand that this can happen, but personally, it's never happened to me. I know people for whom it has happened. It's I'm not saying it never exists, but it's like such a micro minority. Like I've consulted for like, I won't say hundreds, but at least a hundred companies, large companies for this kind of thing. And I'm just like, it's not a problem. It's not a problem except to Google and their like wild ecosystem. Do you think it's something that pops up more often like as your repo or like as your code base gets bigger or? For sure. Like when you do see it as like, is that basically the main thing is when you have one massive repo versus like a bunch of smaller things or something, is that where it just tends to happen? For sure. And like, I think the dominating um, factor is when you depend on modules or whatever, which are ubiquitous, right? And so your dependencies and their dependencies also rely on that same module. And maybe they're not updated at the same like frequency as others are, as yours is. And so therefore, that's how you produce the incompatibility. That's how you produce one thing that needs V1.2.3 and one thing that needs like V5.8.9, right? So so that's fine. But like these ubiquitous packages, I can, in the Go ecosystem, I think there's like 20. I think there's like 20 of them, right? And Go modules is built to support those 20 modules, right? It's like crazy to me. I also feel like, to your point, like we as an ecosystem, we as a language grew up with like, you know, everybody knew that our dependency management system sucked, right? It's like, oh, tip should always be good. Head of master, that should be fine and work. And I think what that did is it forced a lot of Go projects to not use a lot of dependencies, right? Like we are the like antithesis of JavaScript. For JavaScript, you know, you want to do one thing and you get like eight, like 300 dependencies. For us, it's just like, no, nah, you know, you have like a handful of dependencies. Like if you look at a lot of go.mod files, I mean, a lot of ones I've worked with, they're not very long, right? They're like, you know, I think maybe the longest I've seen is like 20 lines or 30 lines. You they're don't, not. You don't work in the Kubernetes ecosystem. Well, that's clear. Yeah. <laughs> and I think Kubernetes is one of those examples where it's just like, that's its own ball of mud over there. But I think for the most part, like a lot of the time we as a community don't import a lot of dependencies. So I think that the chance of that happening is probably relatively low in general, which I think is what your experience has shown, Peter. And I think an another thing I wanted to bring up that you know Tim mentioned around Semver being used as a security tool or like a security indicator. I actually very much don't like that. Like I don't like that we've that we're overloading the version to mean so many things. It's like, okay, it's the compatibility of the API, but now it's also a security indicator. And I think that those are two concerns that we should separate and we should be a bit more nuanced with the tooling that we use for them and the way that we identify them so we have some better understanding. I think also having a bit of, I guess, sympathy for users who are environments that aren't great, where it's like, okay, well, there's this security vulnerability for this piece of software, but we're not using the part of it that's vulnerable. And yeah, we shouldn't be doing that. We should upgrade to the new one. But, you know, we've all been in software engineering situations where it's just like, we just can't upgrade for that for whatever reason. For you know, It will take too much time, too much effort. We should have a way of knowing when we get close, knowing when we touch the thing that is a security vulnerability without having to say, well, it's just in this opaque version and this whole version of the software is bad. Like, I'd really like to see us evolve forward from that in a way that's like, okay, here's the indicator that tells us this is the security vulnerable part of the software. And sometimes that's difficult to pin down. I realize there's some security vulnerabilities that are pervasive throughout like a whole piece of software. And it's like, you're better off just not using that version. But I think adding more nuance would be a very large benefit for us. And I think that's a place where Go could probably do some innovation since we do have a lot of static analysis tooling kind of baked in to the way that we do things. Yeah, I just want to bring that up. 
the one thing real quick, I will say, I guess the way I was thinking about it, I considered that security angle just another aspect of the angle of time. We are past this point in time, and therefore we are okay. But I get your point of it's, it's better to have a richer semantic about the actual risk versus assuming a point in time is just okay. But that was sort of where I was thinking of that from the security aspect. So you want to semantically version not only the module, but every function and identifier in the module. This sounds good to me. That sounds fun. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, not that extreme. You know, there's a middle ground. No, I, I get it. Like, yeah, we have the what, retract directive now. Is that released? I think that was in 1.16, but I'm not sure. Someone in chat will probably correct right. me. But you're saying that's like somehow too coarse. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's a bit coarse, especially if it's like it prevents you from being able to import that version or something. Like I, I tend to be pretty sensitive to like people that are stuck in bad workflows or have bad workflows for whatever reason, because like, yeah, you shouldn't be in a bad workflow, but like getting yourself out of a bad workflow is actually pretty difficult. Like it's a hole you have to dig yourself out of. And if you add things that compound and take up more time, it becomes much harder to dig yourself out of that workflow. I also feel like when it comes to semantic import version or modules in general, one of the things I experienced because I was you know, maintaining a rather large prominent open source library when all of this started coming about, is that even when you are at a company that has you know, financial support for supporting a library, like dealing with the churn that comes from introducing something like this that you know, I think most people would agree when modules first came out, they were not fully baked, they had lots of problems, that added a lot of overhead for me as a maintainer. And when I have a finite amount of time as a maintainer, I don't want to spend it like helping people troubleshoot and it's like, oh, well, you're just importing the wrong version of the module or like your tooling kind of screwed you over or like, oh yeah, we're transitioning between this thing. So now I have to take extra time to be like extra careful and make sure all my files are all set and correct. And I feel like that's of the things that have annoyed me about modules. That's one of my largest is just like, it was already very difficult for maintainers to kind of maintain libraries and go. There was already a lot of overhead because of our lack of like strong dependency management ecosystem. And I feel like the ecosystem that we introduced added more overhead to people. And I feel like that's something that isn't talked about a lot, especially for you know smaller projects that are maintained by one person, because a lot of open source software is maintained by like one or two or three people. It's a small number of people. And I think we have to be much more careful when we talk about like who should pay the cost of things at the end of the day. I really do think that maintainers in the Go ecosystem have paid more than their fair share. And we have to stop being so heavily on the side of like, we should make it easier for consumers. I also think there's, I mean, as we point out, there's lots of problems for consumers. But I think that that whole like it adding so much to the maintainer side of things, I think will either dissuade people from wanting to maintain libraries or at least, you know, get them closer to burnout. Go modules absolutely assumes like and embeds the idea that like the consumers are the most important person in the ecosystem. And if and every decision that makes things easier for consumer is correct, right? It slams the slider all the way to the right, right? And says like consumers are the most important person. Yeah. And that's like top tip to tail. It's an assumption. Definitely. The weird thing about that assumption to me is that you'd think a good chunk of the people working on Go and Go modules has experience working with an open source project and supporting and you know dealing with consumers. And I think anybody who's built even a relatively popular library that they've had to maintain has realized that there's a massive amount of work in, entailed in that. It's not just push the code out there. It's literally like you spend hours all the time doing small things that you really don't want to be doing, but you're, you're doing them to sort of support this library. Yeah, but your team who is fully employed by Google is, of course, 
like has plenty of time to deal with all of those requests and feature and bug reports and everything, right? Like surely that's how you run your open source projects, right? How many engineers do you have on your open source team? <laughs> how many do I have? I mean, I've only had one project, which I have since stopped maintaining, but sorry, one project that was like actually used by like a thousand people or more. And like, I, it was just me. There was one other person who jumped in and helped some and it eventually got to the point where it was just too much to maintain everything. And like, you make mistakes doing it. You support things you shouldn't and do stuff like that. But yeah. it was a, a lot more work than I ever would have imagined it was going to be. You should hire some people, probably staff up your team. You offering to foot the bill? Well, I mean, surely you have all infinite money, right? Like, so Google has AdWords and that's a money printer. And surely you have something the same, right? I've got AdWords, but it just doesn't seem to make any money. Nobody yeah. wants to do ads for me. I did print some money sometime, but the government didn't like it. Yeah. I think the one thing this calls out, though, is sort of related to modules as an overall thing and not so much Civ, but there are definitely things, as you hinted to, right, that is not super great for consumers. When you look at the side effect of the V0 proliferation in the ecosystem and that reluctance to move to V1, we're going to see more breaking changes in those V0 releases. There's going to be things that happen where bugs are introduced, changes are made. And I think one of the challenges we have for consumers is things like replace and exclude statements aren't propagated down to the consumer. And so if you depend on a module that has identified one of its dependencies has a bug and it says, you know what, this version is not compatible, don't use this version, you as a consumer actually don't get that information. You may not be aware of that risk inside of your dependency tree if you do update your dependencies. And so I think there are some opportunities considering that we sort of have this pattern of behavior with V0 that we may need to support at least highlighting those incompatibilities or even failing the build saying, hey, these versions are not compatible. This says it should be excluded. I don't want to resolve this for you because I don't know what the result is. There may need to be more discussions around that type of introduction of behavior if we continue to see these V0 releases you know, grow. Do you not see a case where instead of the V0 releases, people start doing like what Gorm did, where they just basically change the import path? Like they didn't actually change the name of the project. It went from like github.com slash some user slash Gorm to gorm.io slash Gorm. So like instead of releasing a V2 or whatever it would have been, that they basically just changed the entire import path. But it's now confusing in another way. Peter, you're quiet. If you... Yeah, I messed up there. Which every project <laughs> could have done from day zero if they if they needed these like stricter semantics, right? It's like, but I think they only did it because of the changes. Like, I don't think they did it because they necessarily wanted to. It was more just a, this is easier than doing a V2 or essentially equivalent to doing a V2. Yeah. And now there's this weird confusion of like, which one am I supposed to be importing? You have to go like read some docs and figure out like, okay, this is the correct one. I feel like the protobuf library did that as well. When they changed their import path for like the new version uh, that also caused a good deal of confusion for people. I think one risk of that rename one, right, if they're moving to vanity domain, is how reliable is that vanity domain? Not throwing stones at anybody, but, you know, GitHub has an SRE team on call, sort of what Peter was talking about with the team you have staffed up. GitHub has an SRE team on call to make sure that site is up and running 24-7. You might be running your vanity domain on a DigitalOcean VPS or something, right? That's fine, but if that goes down, there can be ecosystem impacts that might be avoided, you know, now GitHub isn't <laughs> infallible either, but I think it, it, it does bring up another angle to challenges that may exist is we may be reliant on single points of failure for those big names in the ecosystem. Yeah, to, to kind of put a point on that, like, you know, we're all humans on this, you know, wide, amazing journey of life. And at some point we shuffle off the mortal coil and, you know, I don't, I don't want to bring this conversation down to a sad level, but we're all going to die, right? When, okay, 
all right, when Ross Cox dies, what happens to RSC.io? You know, people are still going to be depending on that. Does his estate foot the bill for the domain? I don't know. I'm pretty confident that github.com is going to outlive me, right? And so when I ask people to import github.com slash gokit, I'm pretty sure that's like a better bet than peter.borgon.org, right? Like that thing is garbage. That's going to be gone the minute I'm gone. Like people don't think about this. I, but I think it's like it even pertains to that as well because there was that, I don't remember, the guy who had a ton of libraries and he decided I'm done with GitHub, moved everything to GitLab and deleted his account. And I think it was, uh, maybe it was Paul Jolly or, or someone went power through this, and actually... Yeah, like took that account and put the stuff back so like everybody's broken import paths would be repaired. And I think that kind of leads to another thing I want to bring up about modules, but it's like a bit bit more meta than that. And I think it's, you know, Ben Johnson asked in the channel, like, it seems like there's people that are either completely for or completely against modules. I didn't feel like I'm someone that falls in the middle. I'm not against modules as a concept. I'm against the way that we've gone about putting them into our ecosystem. I think we didn't take nearly enough time thinking through all of the different minutiae of what is actually required to make this ecosystem good. Because I think like the vanity name problem could definitely been something that we could have solved if we'd spent more time thinking through the various aspects of like, okay, well, what does happen when somebody's, you know, vanity name goes away? And we've kind of bolted that on after the fact using things like the module proxy and some other things. But I think those are just that, things that we just kind of bolted on after the fact. It wasn't really messaged out very well. And so I think when it comes to modules, my, and you know, Civ is like just like one of the like really, like I think large exacerbators of my problem here is just that we tried to fix things at a technical level, but we didn't solve them at the human level. Because for so long, modules documentation was absolute garbage it was i mean today <laughs> it was so difficult to find out how to use any of this stuff or how this stuff works and there's a lot of people working to like improve this but i think at the end of the day like we shouldn't be as a community as a go team as anybody thinking that just because we've technically solved a problem or we've technically solved part of a problem that it's worth the cost of pushing that out sooner to resolve some people's pain because ultimately i don't think it ever will be i think like Having botched launches like modules in, like gives us years and years and years of pain that we now have to clean up. And I really hope that the Go team and other people that maintain similar things learn from this. Like You have to have documentation. You have to go for the social aspects of the software you maintain. This is not just a technical endeavor. And like, this is so good. This is so good because it gets to the core point of everything here, I think, which is like package management. Do you know any blockchain people? Do you know any blockchain people? Like Bitcoin maximalists or something? Some of them are like, you know, uh, we can express government as a smart contract. You know, like we can define an algorithm which will solve all human problems, right? And it's like, that's broken to the same way. Package management is not a technical problem. It is a social problem. It is a human problem, right? At the core of it is a human social thing. And the technical stuff is just like the ancillary stuff you have to do to, to solve the human problem. But it's my like kind of belief at this point that the people building and maintaining modules don't understand that they think it's a technical problem and the and the human factor can just be like you know like coerced into the right space and that's absolutely backwards right that's backwards and like i don't know how to convince them i've been yelling at brian mills in the modules channel for like a year now and, and like this is not effective uh this is probably my mistake i'm not very good at human stuff so i'm probably not the guy to solve this but like like i, I don't know how to do this i don't know how to do this well, to kind of highlight the complexity, and I, I wish I could remember who said it. it. Could be someone here, who, you know, 
remember the attribution, but somebody highlighted, you know, the modules documentation that exists today is longer than the ghost spec. There is more that needs to be read to understand how to use modules than the entire language itself. And it sort of shows the complexity that exists in just package management as a whole, right? But also in the implementation we have because there are these nuances, these behaviors that are different than other languages we have to explain, provide context on to help folks understand how to think about that in our world. And so I think, yeah, it, to Peter's point, it, there needs to be a better sort of alignment on it being a socio-technical problem where it is that interplay between the people and the system, but the people are really the big part of, of who we're interfacing with here. It's, a, it's the social contracts of those versions and the modules that it released. So related to that documentation thing, if somebody is coming to modules and trying to figure it out, are there good resources that you can recommend at all at this point? Or like, where do you recommend people start off if they're trying to figure it out? Depends on what it is <laughs> in this case. I think, you know, the getting started documentation, if you're coming to the language, getting started has Go Mod in it and the basics for getting at least a module in created to be able to get a Hello World program running. I think that's a good starting point. But beyond that, a lot of what I found is having the conversation with people, understanding what their problems are to then sort of go, here's the documentation that's relevant to you or here's the place that you should go. Because right now it is sort of more of a long form. I think it's in the wiki, right? It's a long form wiki page that you can link into but it doesn't really run you through, I would say, the full process. It's more of like a reference manual in some ways. And so a lot of it is, here's the getting started thing. Here, here is the modules wiki where you might be able to control F search for some things you need. But a lot of what I've seen is conversation with folks and helping them understand the concepts and then provide those reference materials as sort of ancillary you know, information. The question was like, where do you start as a newbie? Was that, was that the idea? Like, well, Yeah, like if somebody's like coming into modules either as a consumer just trying to use Go or as somebody who's like trying to develop a library and they need to figure out like, how do I support right. this modules thing? Like to this day, I don't specifically know what to refer people to. Right. Like I know there are those posts that the Go team has released, but I've read some of them and basically walked away not feeling that much smarter about the whole situation. Yeah. And I don't know if that's because like they understand things at a deeper level than I do because they've been working on it so long or if it's something else. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if there's just mental leaps that I'm not making. So if you're the kind of person who, once you understand a concept, you go to the arcsiv.org and you read the like academic papers on the thing, then yes, absolutely go to the modules wiki, read it tip to tail. The Vigo papers are like 1,050 pages long and you'll get the complete theory. If you're not that kind of person, I would suggest starting at the liquor store. You just go there immediately, get yourself nice and sauced, and then like best effort, basically. There's like a handful of commands you need to know and a handful of things you need to understand and like, you can probably put those in a page. I don't know where that exists. And the problem is even understanding those things, whenever you want to do anything that is like outside of the, the, the normative expectations of, you know, the authors, right? Like if you want to break API compatibility, like every team and every company does about every week when a new business requirement comes in and they need to update their software. If you ask in modules, you actually get the answer that your requirement is wrong. Like this is consistently the answer that I receive when I, present these scenarios so yeah they're, they're, it's just like there's no good answer i agree This episode is brought to you by our friends at GitLab. GitLab is inviting you to attend GitLab Commit 2021, their upcoming user community event, August 3rd and 4th. It's free, it's virtual, and everyone can attend. Learn more about modern DevOps and how it transforms companies of all sizes and pushes teams to drive innovation to market. During this two-day conference, attendees across all time zones will learn how they can instill modern DevOps practices 
at their organizations through in-depth trainings and workshops, hear firsthand stories from some of the most well-known companies, and gain insight into cutting-edge CICD and security technologies that bring companies to the next level. Get ready to innovate together during this free event designed to help you to commit to better DevOps. Register and learn more at GitLabCommitVirtual2021.com. Once again, that's GitLabCommitVirtual2021.com. Or check for links in the show notes. like on a level go mod is a bit like git where there's not really a great way to learn it because there's a lot you have to wrap your arms around and there's a lot of nuance and you can do a lot of really interesting things that you can solve problems and like solve them in interesting ways but it's not user friendly and i think that's one of the other like philosophical problems i have with go modules is that like you know, in the land of DEP, when we had DEP, I felt like the on-ramp to that was really easy. I felt like it just it just kind of worked. I'm sure it was doing all this really complex stuff under the hood, but like Go has tons of complex stuff that like garbage collection is a good example. Like really simple interface, but doing a ton of complex stuff under the hood. And I feel like one of the things that hopefully we can repair in the future around modules is that it exposes too much of that plumbing. Right, it exposes too many of those low-level things that can be difficult, like grok and and understand unless you like, you know, live and exist within the the modules world. And I feel like overloading some of the things we already had to go back to this kind of recurring theme that we have. But I feel like overloading was probably part of the problem. I think overloading Git to make it work with modules was also probably a mistake because I think it winds up being confusing. And now that we're trying to repair that mistake, right? We're separating the go install part from go get. But I think overloading that when we still existed in a world that was both GoPath and Go modules, and in some cases for some people still is GoPath and Go modules, and Go get working differently than it worked in GoPath requires a lot of nuance to explain and to tell people that you have to document. And I think that kind of gets in the way of people that are coming in fresh for the first time from getting the information. But if they ever run into a project that is only GoPath, then they'll have to know that information anyway. So I think we kind of put ourselves in a bind in a bit of a way because of our usage of these commands that meant a very specific thing and had very specific semantics. So I think at the end of the day, that's another one of my kind of big grievances with modules isn't that like we introduce something new, but that we change the meaning of what things that had established meanings meant, right? That's the import path thing, right? When you imported something at the blank identifier, that usually meant you were going to get the latest. If you go got something at the import path, that meant you got the latest. That's no longer true. And I don't think that we can keep doing those things to people because I think it will just turn Go into a worse version of Git from like the semantics level where you're just like, there are like seven different commands that do the same thing and I don't understand the differences between them. And if I make a mistake, I have to like go learn what a ref log is to dig myself out of it. And I really don't want us to get there as a community. So I hope we really slow down our pace of what we're changing and what we're introducing to help make it so that we can make fewer of these kind of unforced errors. You touch on this really fundamental point which I keep coming back to and no one listens to me about, but I'm excited that you said it because I'm going to, I'm excited to have an ally here, which is like, you mentioned that like modules kind of redefines some things that we already have an intuitive understanding of. And I completely agree. Right. 
And going back to the beginning, it's, it's like the two things that package management systems deal in is the dimension of identity and the dimension of time. A module and its version, right? Identity and time. And what modules, Go modules does is says, well, actually, a segment of that version vector space is actually in the identity vector space. This is wrong. Like humans don't think this way, right? And like, I understand the advantages of making that change. It makes tooling a lot easier. It makes it possible to roam and ride between seven chariots as you're like, I don't know, appeasing Julius Caesar and building your incredibly complex application in a pathologically broken software ecosystem, i.e. Google's monorepo, right? It, it's important in that context, but so few people have that context. Nobody outside of Google understands things in that way. And when we talk about like, the language, right? The language makes a lot of normative assertions like this, like air handling is done in one way. And if you want, you know, exceptions, well, you're wrong. Sorry, get out of here, right? That's fine, that's fine. Because anyone who's considering using Go and doesn't like that can use a different language, right? They have the option. But if you're using Go and you look at the package management system and you see that like stability means something way stricter than you think it means, you don't have the option of using a different package management system. You have to use this one. So like it has a monopoly on this space and therefore it doesn't get to make the same sort of like normative assertions about how you should be doing things as the language does about how you should be programming, right? And like, this is so key. This is so key. They don't have the same like budget to be doing this sort of thing. And they don't understand this. It's a people problem that they can't that they're overstepping their bounds, right? This is my position. No one agrees with me. That's fine. I, mean, I can imagine some people making the argument that it's, it's almost like if you don't like the package management system, it's kind of like if you don't like the lack of exceptions, you just don't use Go. But the real hard part there is that there's a huge chunk of people who have been using Go. And at this point, it's being introduced like newly to them. It's not like it was they're making the decision of do I use Go or do I use some other language. At this point, they're in Go. They can't change that. I feel like too many, I guess it's not even people are on the fringes, so I think it is is a large number of people, but I think that there's a lot of just like broad strokes that are happening in a lot of the discussions around this. And a lot of the people that are not in like niche cases, but a lot of people around the edges are getting left out at the end. Like there was this huge push for a very long time, right? I think it was like go 113 or whatever. And we're like, go path will be dead. It will be gone. Like, screw you if you still need it. And I'm glad that the Go team eventually listened to the community and, and you know, people that still need Go path can still use it. But I worry about our community's ability to like still be inclusive from a social level if our fundamental way we operate on a technical level is so uninclusive, right? We are a very opinionated community, and that can be good for some things, but I think it's inherently harmful in a lot of ways when it comes to these types of discussions and comes to the way that things are, are framed. And I know a lot of people will push back on this sort of thing and be like, oh, these are two different things. Like Our inclusion and diversity problems have nothing to do with this. But at the end of the day, humans don't segment things like that, and things are not that clean and not that simple. All of this is connected. I mean, as we were just saying, like dependency management is largely a social problem. We're dealing, we're talking about largely social problems. You're not necessarily technical problems that we're running into. And those social problems span across a lot of things. So I think that is also a thing that we need to take into account. We can't be saying we value inclusion and we really want to drive this diverse community from a human level and then turn around and say, your use case isn't what we want to support anymore. And 
it's because we think that your use case is, is wrong. And it's fine to think that their use case is wrong, but as like a steward of a community, you need to realize that you have to like find ways to help people out, even if you don't like what they're doing, even if you think that what they're doing is wrong. You have to meet people where they are. Yeah, and I think that that's been, for me, one of, you know, one of those top things that has made me not like modules is that I feel like at the end of the day, a lot of the people that are like, hey, I'm really struggling. I'm really frustrated. Can you please give me some guidance? Give me some help. Give me some solutions. Well, in the private, a lot of people from the Go team will help you and they will give you good guidance. But in the public, it feels like you're just met with, no, you're wrong. Don't do it that way. You're, you're doing things incorrectly. Let me tell you how you should be doing the things that you should be doing. And I think that's one of the things that we need to stop doing at a community level and as, as a stewardship level. Look, I love telling people that they're wrong. It's my favorite thing. And I have a budget for that. It's contextually dependent, right? Like you can tell people that the way that they're using global state is wrong. And that's one thing. But you can't really make assertions about people's workflows, right? If they're in an organization, a context where like the market mandates that they move at a certain product velocity and they like have a risk tolerance that is not specifically your risk tolerance, you can't tell them that that's wrong. Like it is true for them. And you have to accommodate that if you want to be a tool that they can use. You can't say that like Go is only a tool that can be used when your like tolerance for like panics is, is zero, right? Like you can, but then, you know, 14 people use the language, right? You can't say modules is a package management system you can use only if stability means this very specific and strict thing and you never like and you get it perfect on the first try right you can do that but then no one's going to use modules so we're all going to stick on v0 which is i guess what we're doing right how do i incept this understanding in the core team does anyone have any idea like do we have the technology from it goes a little bit both ways right like and that's the i mean this is the tough thing about building inclusive communities both from a human side and from a technical side is that like we can't have it where everybody is doing things wrong, so we all yelled at each other. I think that there's a there's a lot of like both sides have some problems that we all need to resolve, and we need to find better ways of communicating. You know, from a like leadership perspective, I do think that the Go team should you know be on that higher pedestal since they are in the position where they're supposed to be shepherding the community. But I understand how that can be hard at times. But I think too, at the end of the day, like we just have to keep pushing back if we think things are wrong and do so in a respective manner. Respectable? I don't know what word I'm trying to say here. But I do think that like the problems that we're struggling against are achievable and are solvable. But I think at the end of the day, if we aren't listened to, like, you know, it's an open source project. Maybe a fork is something that needs to happen in the future. Maybe this is a part where our community is no longer one community and we need to start talking about diverging. So I think there are other solutions out there outside of just like banging our head up against each other or like kind of screaming at each other and screaming past each other. Like if at the end of the day, uh, we have like very divergent philosophies about how things should work, then that means that we might need to divert, which is a really tough conversation to have and a really difficult thing for a community to go through. But, you know, maybe this is the point where that happens. That sounds hard. It's much more fun to just complain. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. But I was going to say, we've seen both in Ruby and the Node.js ecosystem, they have had those forks, right? Where there were disagreements on how the project was going. And after a while, ideas came out and they actually ended up coming back together. Ruby Enterprise Edition back in the 1.8 era. And Node had its own, the IOJS split. And there were fundamental ideas that they disagreed on. They split off and, and proved their idea and eventually came back together after there was a reconciliation of those ideas. And so there are patterns of 
folks and communities going, hey, you know, I don't think you're aligned with our needs. I'm going to sort of go off for a little bit and prove my point. But then I think it's important to figure out how we reconcile back together and not try to retain two separate paths, right? Is there a way where once those ideas are talked about, shown, air quote, proven, how do we reconcile back together as a single community to make sure those benefits are seen and used by others, if it does apply? And that's definitely like the most extreme example as well. Like I hope that we can resolve our disagreements through discussion and that, you know, maybe we all be like, okay, the past is the past. Let's try to come at this with open and clear minds and do some sort of resolution like that. So I don't think that there's anybody that's trying to be a bad actor. Like, I don't think there's bad actors here, people that are intentionally just like, ha, 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 I want to screw these people over. Definitely maybe. No, I'm, I'm, I'm that person sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think that, you know, at the end of the day, if you go read like Russ's explanation of like why modules, it's clear that he perceives that there is a big problem that needs to be solved and people are in pain and he's trying to help resolve that pain. And I think that there's a lot of disagreements about whether that pain is real or not, but he perceives it. So for him, it's real, which is what matters. It matters what people themselves perceive. We don't want to get into gaslighting territory here. So I think that we just have to find a way to have a bigger conversation or a more open conversation somehow, some way. Maybe that's like getting in person and talking to each other or something. But it seems like there's probably multiple paths here, but we should probably not do the paths that we've been doing so far because they do not appear to be working. I'd actually mentioned this to Chris before the episode. I feel like this issue might have been exacerbated by the fact that we were all quarantined for the past year. And like, usually you have conferences where people get together and these heated discussions, I feel like are a lot easier to have in person, whereas like online people aren't necessarily at their best all the time. So like actually having groups of people get together. What are you saying? Are you saying I'm not at my best I right mean, now? Video chat's definitely That's better, absurd. but I feel like when you get into like a text format and like, like forums or, or mailing lists or Slack, like sometimes things can get way more heated and hostile or like you can misinterpret something much much easier whereas like in-person discussions i feel like there's a lot more give and take and it just works a lot better and we just have not had that for so long that i don't know if that's i mean i can't say for sure that it definitely would have been better if we were all in person but i feel like it might have had some more progress than what was necessarily there now what's interesting is like the whole go language is basically like ivory tower-ish like it's it's like the core team is like in a room all the time right it's like they're together right they make the decisions more or less in person and i think the language has benefited enormously from this i think like you can't design something good with a distributed group of uh stakeholders of, of, of like cardinality 100 i think you like all good designs come from like two or three people which is the genesis of go i, I think that's a requirement and so, yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in this, actually. But I don't know, even when the world wasn't under global pandemic, did we ever really, like, hang out? I mean, like, at GoverCon, we did, I guess. I remember some conference rooms. It's, I guess I'm more referring to, like, at least at those conferences, there was a chance to sort of interact with them and talk with them, at least more so than there seems to have been since. Yeah. They're on this, like, what is this, like, two-week break now? What is this? Like, they're with their family? Two-week I don't know. Quiet time or something. Yeah. Come on. What are you doing? No, I'm, I'm kidding. This is totally. Okay. <laughs> so we are, we're running well past the time. So I'm going to jump into unpopular opinions. I actually think you should probably leave. I don't know if this entire episode was an unpopular opinion. I was going to say, it's a really good segue from what Peter just said, ironically enough, which is designs by committee aren't necessarily, or decisions by committee aren't necessarily a bad thing. 
is the yeah i see the face no but <laughs> but i agree with your point i'm not talking about 100 people i'm talking three right a small group it can't be a large group it needs to be a small group and i think it goes back to what peter was saying on the ivory tower stuff right i think if you have like benevolent dictators of a language there needs to be a, the right amount of questioning of their own opinions and their beliefs and sort of discarding of some of those and so my thought there is the committee might give more diverse experiences, backgrounds, inputs into a decision being made versus there being some sort of you know, unilateral decision maker who may be heavily influenced by their own opinions, beliefs, and experiences versus having others be able to influence that process. I would say that I think that's, that's an agreeable position, but I think it can be larger, actually. I think like the thing about committees that people often hate is when there's not either psychological safety or team cohesion, right? If you don't have people that are that think that they're all in this together and kind of rowing in the same direction, then yeah, committees suck. But like, so do benevolent dictator structures. Those also suck. Now you just have like one person that's making bad decisions. So I think like, as long as you have that base level of like psychological safety and team cohesion of like, I might not get my way this time, but I'm going to support the other people that got their way because when I do get my way and they disagree with me, I want them to also support me. Once you have that, I think it's so much easier to have even larger groups of people be able to make decisions on like a pretty quick pace and not get stuck in, you know, bike shedding or turmoil all the time. So I think like, you know, committee based things get a really bad rap, but that's because we're really bad at making team cohesion. Like, we say we don't want to do it, so we're just like, just put one dude in charge or one woman or, you know, it's almost always a dude, but one dude in charge and, and they'll, they'll make all of the decisions for us. They'll, you know, bring down the hammer and be like, this is what we're doing. But that's like incredibly harmful and damaging <laughs> to our ability to actually go and produce things at the end of the day as well. Benevolent dictator, wrong. One, bad. Two, very good, I think. I would say that part of the issue with getting a larger group, though, is the fact that like, let's say it's a heated discussion, like there's 100 people on the committee, and it's roughly evenly you know, distributed. At some point when they make a decision, roughly half of the group is going to feel like they didn't get the decision they wanted. And then when you have a large enough group, instead of having it be like three people where you all have to sort of keep talking and working with each other, they start to like segment into like two opposing factions. And you get basically our political system of like, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party where they go more and more apart. And if you have that happening in a committee, it can basically become very toxic very quickly. Whereas like Chris, you said, if they are working towards the same thing and they aren't doing that, then yeah, it works great. But I think the larger you get, the more likely it is that that can more easily happen. I mean, I think at the end of the day, like this is like, maybe it's an unpopular opinion, but I feel like that is actually a good thing when you have a large group of people and things start grinding to a halt, because that means that you have a problem you need to resolve. Like if you can't get team cohesion with a group of people that are supposed to be in agreement with each other, that means you either have like wrong personalities which you need to deal with or you're like not actually kind of all focused on the same thing that's like when when i work at companies and it's kind of like an us versus them between like an engineering and business department i'm like but no we're all heading toward one thing we should all be on the same path we might have disagreements but as i said like there is this like at the end of the day you have to build a system where like okay we vote and some group wins and in the long run, you know, hopefully we'll all even out and we'll all, you know, we'll win some, we'll lose some. And we just have to kind of accept that and move forward with that. But if you're not like if the people that are participating in the system don't want to deal with that type of burden of having to like lose sometimes and they always want to win, then, yeah, the system won't work. But also that's kind of regressing down to like the lowest point. And at the end of the day, like when it comes to communities like ours, like we make decisions and then we all have to go do stuff with that. 
Um, you know, an engineering department, you make a decision, then, then people have to go actually do the work. So I think when you have larger groups of people, as long as the people actually have to go do something at the end of the day, as long as they have to like go affect work, having your voice at least be heard and then making sure that people like know that like their input is valued is a way to kind of keep things moving. I think that's really the only way to scale because you can't scale a benevolent dictator very well. Yeah, you uh, can. I, I, I don't know. I mean, you can scale it to some degree, but you can't scale it up too high. Or what you really wind up doing is having a benevolent dictator who has, like, a bunch of lieutenants who they kind of always listen to. And that's like, okay, now you have, like, a bunch of benevolent dictators, and hopefully none of them get all, like, political or try to die. So it's like you wind up always having a committee of some sort once you start scaling. One human can't do everything. And it's like, do you want a committee where the people at the end of the day that are going to do the majority of the work actually get to be the ones doing like having a say or do you want one where and it depends you know there's there's different opinions and there's different ways that it could work some people have, want, don't want to have any input but i think for us as a community i feel like the way we've definitely started to go is like people want to have input people want to be listened to people want to be heard and we should find ways of supporting that or at least get more people that can support yeah. that here's the thing right when go is released it was three dudes because robert it was rob and it was ken thompson right Yes. Three dudes in a room. They designed the language. They released it. This is kind of what Go is. It's kind of an ivory tower language. There's this one comic. They like visualize the ethos of various programming languages. In the Go one, there's this huge dude, a hulking dude with the word Google written on the front of his shirt. And he says, <laughs> and the tiny dude is like, I'm just going to do what you say. Because that, that is what Go is, right? It tells you how to program, right? And that's kind of what we are. And like, I kind of want to lean into that. I think it's kind of like fine that there exists a language in the ecosystem of languages where it is an ivory tower, like by fiat, like this is what you should do at a language level. When you have a group of people, right, and you task them with making a decision. Remember that quote that gets like taken out of context all the time by Rob, where it's like, you know, Go is written for people who are not necessarily geniuses. And, you know, mm. like they, and like a lot of yeah. people are just like, oh, like it was for dumb people, right? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? Like whatever yeah. the phrasing is, right? So like, I want to say this again in a way that is more specific. Like as the number of programmers in an organization grows, the skill level trends towards the mean. This is just a fact, right? You can't avoid this, right? So if you want to write a programming language that serves the needs of a large number of programmers, it has to respond to the average programmer, right? It has to, like, you can't assume that everyone's brilliant. You can hire a team of 10 brilliant people. You cannot staff a company with 10,000 brilliant people, right? It's just like, it's, it's not possible. So when you say, like, a decision being made by a large group of people will tend towards the, like, least common denominator of what everyone can agree on by definition, right? Like by definition. And so if you only have three people who are all geniuses, the least common denominator of their opinions is going to be better, quote unquote, than the least common denominator of a hundred people by definition, right? And so you can say like, okay, maybe that's important. Maybe it's less important than having a lot of people having their opinions in the big stone soup pot and like whatever comes out of that stone soup pot of a bunch of other people's opinions is ultimately better than the three ivory tower geniuses. That's the position. But I really appreciate working in a language that is basically delivered to me from on high by three people who know what the f- they're doing. There's my other cuss. Who know what they're doing, right? And like, I, like that's why I'm here. 
Like, I'm not interested in being the guinea pig for somebody's like guess at how async should work, right? Like, I want my language to be stable. I want that to be written by people who know what they're doing. And I'll do all the dumb stuff. That's my domain. You do the good stuff. I do the dumb stuff, right? I want that every tower stuff. So like, yeah, the design by committee, you know, Fred Brooks, who's the mythical man month, I guess. Like if one woman takes nine months to have a baby, you can't, yeah, you can't to, have nine women have a baby in one. Exactly. Month. Right, right. He wrote another book called the design of design, which in my opinion is strictly better. And like in that book, he substantiates this idea that like all good systems for the broadest definition of systems are designed by like two or three people tip to tail because the like frictional costs, the overhead costs of decisions by committee of more than that number of people ruin all the advantages, like decimate good design, right? So I'll say a couple things. A, there's a little bit of irony here in that you're so much for this whole ivory tower and that you hate modules so much. I explained why that's true, right? <laughs> I, this is, I, 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 I think on the, on the other side, I think it's not like we should just have like one giant forum, where there's like everybody screaming at each other. This is why you have like committee structures in parliamentary systems or congressional systems, right? So you have to break down things where you have the real discussions at the small, and then you bring up to the large, and then everybody agrees at the large or whatever. And you have ways of people voicing things in the small, you know, discussions. But you have a dedicated set of people that are like, these are the people that will make the decision. I think that that is more of what I was getting at than the like, Everybody should always be yelling into the void and then we'll have everybody vote in some weird direct democracy sort of thing. So it's like a much more nuanced system. But I do see your point where there can be a lot of nice things. I think that that does rely a lot on having the right type of leaders in place that understand the, the awesome power that comes oh, with yeah. being a, a BDFL. And, oh, yeah. Well, and two people. No, BDFLs. Two people. Three. Okay. So a, a small all right, so I hate to cut you off, but we are well over the time, and I believe Tim has to go shortly. So I'm going to wrap this up by saying thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for listening to Go Time. We have a bundle of awesome podcasts for you at changelog.com. That includes our brand new show, Ship It, with Gerhard Lazoo a podcast about getting your best ideas into the world and seeing what happens. It's about the code, the ops, the infra, and the people that make it happen. Yes, we focus on the people because everything else is an implementation detail. Subscribe now at changelog.com slash ship it or simply search for ship it in your favorite podcast app. You'll find it. And of course, the galaxy brain move is to subscribe to our master feed. It's all changelog podcasts, including go time and ship it in one place. Search changelog master feed or head to changelog.com slash master and subscribe today. GoTime is produced by Jared Santo with music by Breakmaster Cylinder. We're brought to you by Fastly, Launch Darkly, and Linode. Next time on GoTime, Angelica and Chris welcome Gail Sharma to discuss the age-old question, do devs need product managers? We'll have that episode ready for you next week.
have an after hours, uh, or I guess after the official recording, unpopular opinion that will probably just recycle for, for a future time. But, okay. Uh, I mean, we, we are still live on YouTube, just so everybody knows. Tim, if you need to go, that's fine. But if you guys want to stay and chat a little bit more, we can. It's completely up to you. Yeah, I just I just wanna I wanna see what Peter's reaction to this is, because I, I think you'll have a bad one. So I use the word least important, not as not important, but actually least important. So I think that code is the least important part of software engineering. I agree. Damn it. Too bad. <laughs> I would I would rephrase it slightly like code is liability and you should minimize it. Essentially the same thing, yeah. Yeah. Damn. Yeah.